this thing fitted. We're week three into this sort of much larger movement in the book of Acts. Hey, uh, Mike, are you back there? Can you throw the spots on real quick so I can see my Bible these up here when you get a chance? Um, we're now in the week three in a much larger movement in the, uh, the book of Acts. And the idea really behind it is that I love teaching this way through Scripture. I love kind of going verse by verse and taking Scripture in its context and moving through it. And I've sort of explained over the past couple of weeks why this is important to us as a church and how we want to really be bibliocentric and all that kind of stuff. And, and I gave an in-depth history of the book of Acts and Luke and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm not going to do that this week. If you want to catch up, it's available on the website. You can listen to sort of that history. We're going to kind of just dive right in. And so if you sort of miss a little bit of our, our history, you can go back and catch up. But we're going to dive right in. But I love this kind of teaching because what it does, it te- keeps us in the context and perspective of what's unfolding in history. And scripture has to be understood and read in context. It's incredibly important. And so when we move through it in these waves, we can see how God's redemptive plan was really at work and how he was setting the church up to be his expression to the world. So two weeks ago, we kind of launched this by really exploring this sort of call of the church. And we talked about how that first chapter in the book of Acts is really marked by the disciples gathering around the, the resurrected Christ in his last resurrection appearance, right? 40 days after the crucifixion and resurrection, uh, they're standing there around the resurrected Christ, and they're asking Jesus these questions. They're going, is this the time, Jesus, where you're going to restore Israel and put us back as like a, a prominent political power, right? And Jesus' response was, hey, look, the day or the hour is not for you to know, right, what the Father's already chosen, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the, ends of the earth. And we explored the narrow kind of worldview of the disciples and how the call of the church was to live as the witness and expression of Christ in Jerusalem and we talked about what that meant in Judea, Samaria, various earth. We explored the call for us as a church. What if we really lived this sort of empowered and sent mentality that recognize that my understanding of church is not defined by what you have to offer me in this sort of western consumer driven mentality but instead said God I want to be sent and empowered by you. We sort of unpacked that. And then last week, we worked our way to the end of the first chapter, and we saw the first move of the church, the first action of the church, being faithful in what Jesus had commanded them to do, to go and stay in Jerusalem until the promised gift of the Holy Spirit comes, which we're going to see today. And the church was gathered there, and as they were praying and reading Scripture, they realized that there was a hole that they had to fill. The Scripture sort of pointed to the fact that they needed to replace Judas as one of the twelve apostles, and so we explored the, the movement that the church took to put Matthias into the place of Judas and sort of the expression of the church that first move of the church that was wrapped up in obedience um, both to scripture and to Christ and in prayer in terms of unity and persistence and we talked about how that could be what if that was a hallmark of our church or of the church in general obedience to scripture to Christ unity and prayer persistence and we sort of explored that chapter two which we're going to be in today is where everything changes everything in history changes Because we're going to see this movement of the Holy Spirit be given by God, this promise of the gift, and it changes the trajectory of the church. It changes the trajectory of believers. It changes your heart. It changes my heart. It changes the very expression of the church. It is a watershed moment, and it's one that everything hinges on. And it was a fulfillment of a promise and a picture of God's redemptive plan. And so we're going to kind of work through that as we explore what transpired on that incredible morning when the Holy Spirit literally blew into the room where the disciples were gathered. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open to uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 13 or 12 or 13 verses this morning as we kind of explore um, that picture in our walk 
through the book of Acts as we talk about what it means to be empowered and sent. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you, Lord, that, that really it's all we need. Lord, you don't need me to do great explanation or any of those kind of things. Lord, your word speaks for itself. It is, it is powerful. And God, I pray that what you would do this morning is that you would introduce us to your word. That whatever else transpires here, God, we would encounter your word and it would change our hearts. Lord, I, I deeply believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Uh, that scripture is not come some kind of supplemental thing that we just put into our life when we need a pick-me-up. But God, it is the very breath as we'll explore today, God, of, of who you are. And so I pray that you would speak to us and help us understand how this passage relates not only to the history of the church, but to our call as Christ followers. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Whatever that means, however you need to articulate that, just ask God in your heart to speak to you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, pray for somebody around you. Each week I say this, be in the habit of praying for other people. This whole moment is not just about you. Pray that God would move in the people around you. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask that you would be the ultimate teacher and instructor. That God, your word would be known, that you would increase, that we would decrease. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right, so Acts chapter 2, I'll read it and then I'll just sort of, we'll just kind of dive into it. There's kind of a lot here, so we'll see how much I can get to. This is the problem with me in teaching the book of Acts, right, is that my thought was, well, yeah, we'll get through this in like a few years or whatever, but the more I kind of go through it, the more I realize I can only get through like three verses. So, we're going to actually try and go for 13, and that's the goal. So I'm going to try and push us through that. But if not, we're, we literally will be here when Christ comes back, which could be today. could be 50 years from now. So anyway, okay, so Acts chapter 2, right? Here it is. All right, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are all these men who are speaking not Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, they hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. <clears throat> so the hallmark moment in the book of Acts is really this moment. Now a lot of people will tell you that, that Acts 2 right here, this is the birthday of the church and we know from looking at Acts chapter 1 that this is not quite really the birthday of the church. I mean, the church came into existence the moment Jesus spoke it into existence in Acts chapter 1. We actually saw the first movement of the church last week where they gathered together and replaced 
Judas, and they put Matthias in that place. And so the, the church has been going for about 10 days now, but this certainly is that moment in which God fulfills this incredible promise to the church that Jesus had told them to wait on the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and God shows up in this incredible way. <clears throat> now let me give you a little history about Pentecost so we understand exactly what's unfolding. There really were three Jewish festivals that were kind of pilgrimage festivals, if you will. Festivals where people gathered from all over the area and they came to Jerusalem. The first one was Passover, right? Fifty days prior to this was the Passover. We sort of explored that in the week, last week in the life of Jesus. Um, people got together and, and celebrated God's protection and provision, bringing them out of Egypt. <clears throat> so the first of those was this Passover feast. Pentecost was the second of those pilgrimage Feasts, right? It was originally called the Feast of First Fruits. It was associated with the grain harvest, later become known as, by the Jewish people as the giving of the loss. It was a lot of things tied in there, but it was called the Pentecost because it's a Greek word that means 50, and it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. It was really seven weeks of seven days plus one. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Weeks. All that to say it was a moment in time where all the Jewish people from all over came back to Jerusalem to gather and worship and celebrate God giving the law, celebrate the first fruits of the harvest, God's promise, and all of those things kind of wrapped into one. And so in the city, again, much like we saw 50 days ago, were Jewish people from all over the area that were gathered there. And the disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here. And I explained to you last week why this was really important and difficult for the disciples. They didn't want to stay in Jerusalem. They were Galileans, and I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. They wanted to go back to what they were comfortable with. But Jesus says, stay. And so they gathered and stayed in Jerusalem and waited for God to show up. Now on that little timeline of kind of events, we have Jesus being crucified and resurrected. And then 40 days after that, Acts chapter 1 takes place where Jesus sins into heaven right before their very eyes. He literally goes up before their very eyes. And then 10 days after that, we are sitting right here on Pentecost. And the idea is the promised gift of the Holy Spirit comes. Now as we sort of explore this text, we really see three movements that sort of accompany this incredible, unbelievable sort of event that takes place. And those, those movements really are this idea of the wind, right? This idea of these tongues of fire that come to rest on the disciples. And then the actual miraculous moment in all that where the, the disciples begin to speak and the apostles begin to speak in other native languages. So I want to look at those kind of quickly as we kind of head to a bigger place. But the idea is this. This miraculous thing is unfolding in front of them. And it's really kind of encapsulated by three things, three movements. And the first is this idea of this, this wind. And this is how it's described. They were gathered in one place, and suddenly the sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So suddenly the sound, now we don't get the sense that there's a physical wind, like you know, tornado hurricane winds, but the sound of a violent wind that came and filled the entire room where they were sitting. Now you've really got to understand sort of the nature of the Old Testament to really catch the powerful, not only significance, but nature of what's happening. So the Greek word that's used there for wind is the word pneuma, and it actually means wind and breath, all right, and spirit. It means all three of those things. And interestingly enough, the Old Testament is Hebrew, and a Hebrew word for that exact same idea, wind, breath, and spirit, is the word rach, okay? And the word rach is actually used 
in the Old Testament to describe creation, all right? So God breathed his rah into man, and man became a living and breathing rah, or spirit. Now, it's an interesting concept because the idea of God's breath is one that's associated with creation. And that same word translates to those exact same things in the Greek. And the idea of understanding is that this incredible, violent presence, numarach of God, blows into the room. And they would have immediately associated this understanding with creation because God breathed life into the lungs of man. And what we're seeing here is this sort of fulfillment of this new order, this new covenant, this new creation idea. That the old is gone and the new has come. Paul will later talk about it saying that anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And this wind, right, this breath, this pneuma, this holy movement of God is one expression of new creation, right? And it was the sound that they understood. God's presence showed up in this loud, violent wind. It was his breath, his spirit, this movement. The idea of pneuma is one where we get the idea of like a pneumatic drill or a pneumatic press, something that is powered and moved by heavy amounts of air. The same concept is God shows up in this violent sound, right? No movement of wind, but this violent sound. And it was a connection with this new order of creation that was coming. So the promise of the Holy Spirit brought with us the promise of new creation. That God was breathing life, not just into one singular picture of humanity, but he was growing this redemptive plan, breathing life into the disciples through the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. The promise of the Holy Spirit, this wind, was a promise of life. It was the pneuma of God. The second thing that we see in this sort of little three-part movement is this idea of these tongues of fire that come to rest on each of these people. So here they are, this violent wind comes from heaven and fills the whole house, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So they hear this violent wind, and they see these tongues of fire which come to rest on each person sitting in this space. A lot of really important things here, but the first is the understanding of, the, like wind, the role that fire plays in redemptive history, right? So if you know your Old Testament at all, you'd know that, that fire is really important, right? God manifests himself to Israel when he's delivering them from Egypt in a pillar of fire, right? God's presence of protection, right, by night. God appears to Moses in this idea of a burning bush, God's presence in the middle of this fire. When God was giving the law to the Israelites, they could look up on Mount Sinai and what they saw, they saw flames. Fire in the Old Testament was not just a symbol of God's presence. It was God's presence. God was present in those things. He was present in the pillar of fire. He was present in the burning bush. He was present on Mount Sinai. The idea of fire is one that's associated with the presence of God. So here we have these tongues of fire, symbolizing God's presence. God's literal kind of presence in the middle of that room, encapsulated by his Holy Spirit. Not mere symbolism, but actually God's presence. And what's really unique about this is that these tongues of fire were divided and they fell on each person gathered there. In the Old Testament, God's presence was contained to the temple. It was contained to a singular place where people had to go and they had to actually worship God there. So they traveled. It's why pilgrimage holidays were a big deal. They would travel to Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship where God literally dwelled. In the Old Testament, they took the tabernacle around which contained the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's presence, 
And God's presence was worshipped in that space. When the tongues of fire become divided, the idea is that God's presence is no longer in one singular area in which all of creation must go to see. But that the promise of the Holy Spirit was that God's presence would dwell within each believer. The idea being is that this pneuma of God, this new creation of God, brought with it the presence of God that would literally dwell in the heart of every single believer. Paul says it this way. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are the temple of God's Holy Spirit? That our physical bodies and lives become the dwelling place of God's Spirit. What's happening here is God is making a new order of things in this new covenant where the presence of who he is dwells in us as followers of Christ. That his breath brings about new creation and then God's promise is for me, in me. And these tongues of fire literally on each believer. God's new creation, the very breath of God breathed his presence into the life of these Christ followers. Which means that now we have access to eternal God on our own. And we don't have to go through the mediator, the high priest, or the chief priest, or whatever. But we have access to God because his spirit dwells in me as a follower of Christ. So you see the powerful connection that's unfolding here in this moment of Pentecost. But then there's this kind of more exciting kind of miracle moment that's attached to this already incredible event. When the disciples begin to speak in other tongues. So listen to what happens next. So these incredible events, this violent wind, these tongues of fire, right? And then this happens. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So you got to remember that this area, Jerusalem, at this point in time was filled with Jewish people from every surrounding countryside and area known to kind of humans at that point in time. And this happened for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because Israel in the Old Testament didn't follow God. They wanted their own way, and they wanted to do things their own way. And so God basically handed them over to their enemies. And the northern the kingdom was divided, and the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, and they were hauled off into exile. A little while later, the southern kingdom, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians, and they were hauled off into exile. So as Israel was scattered all over the area, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and other empires took over them. They intermarried, and they made families. And they took on those languages and those cultures. But they held very distinctly to their Jewish practices. And they still came in for religious kind of events and pilgrimage holidays. And so this list that Peter, or I'm sorry, that Luke gives is actually an exhaustive list of five people groups. Five people groups where Jewish people kind of had made their presence known across the known world. And they all spoke different languages. Now, the common language that everyone would have spoke was Greek, or they at least would have understand it, uh, because they were kind of under that movement of the Roman Empire, and the Greek-speaking world was sort of taking over. And what was happening was, as that this crowd began to hear in their own native languages, right, these wonders of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever traveled um, abroad, or you've ever gone somewhere where they predominantly speak not English, right, another language. And I've done a lot of traveling overseas, doing missions, and stuff like that, and when you spend three or four weeks or two or three weeks in another country and all you hear is that language, right? You hear it, you hear it, you hear it, and you go back to the airport and all of a sudden you start hearing things in your own language. It catches you off guard because you're not used to hearing that. Well, it's kind of a similar concept. You've got these men and women that have traveled and they, these are long journeys and they made it to Jerusalem and they're so used to hearing these other kind of either Greek or what was being spoken at the time there in Jerusalem that they're not used to hearing their own native tongues. I mean, who in this country actually knows 
that I'm from, you know, X number of miles away, and we speak this, and, and now I'm hearing things in my language. And the people were amazed and bewildered that they were hearing the wonders of God in their own native language. Now, a couple of things I want you to understand about this idea of, of tongues. And we can make and talk in length at what we want to about Paul's expression of tongues in, Corinth, in the Corinthians, letter to the Corinthians. But what we're see- seeing here is something very distinct. We're seeing here an actual audible language that is being articulated and understood by people. Readily understood. So while it may be in essence the same as what happens in Corinthians, the purpose is different. It is an intelligible language that is communicating God's wonders to people, right? What we see in Corinthians is a language that was not intelligible to everybody, but was for God's glory. had a different purpose. We can talk at length about that later. But what we're seeing here is a specific thing. The people are hearing wonders of God in their own native languages. And Luke gives this crazy list of people that speak all these different languages, and they are amazed. Well, also what we know about that sort of moment of tongues or the languages is that they were doing it as the Spirit enabled them. Important, right? Because this isn't sort of built on the holiness of a person or my ability to be like super religious or whatever. The Spirit was enabling. God's presence was dwelling in the heart of people now, and His Spirit, the Spirit was moving them to proclaim these wondrous signs. It wasn't an action of the disciples or the apostles. It wasn't like, hey, let's go and do this. As God entered in them and they saw and experienced His glory, this was an expression that God brought about in them. And they began to speak in these other languages. So we've got this movement of, of wind, of, of pneuma, of rock, of new creation, of God violently showing up in a powerful way that signaled new things to come. We're all new in Christ, right? New creations. We've got these tongues of fire that are identifying the fact that the Holy Spirit is no longer contained to a temple or to a tabernacle or to an ark, but that His Spirit now dwells in me as a follower of Christ. That is the promise. That is the gift. And we see the expression of that gift in a miraculous way that wasn't driven by the work or the efforts of a human. But on God's divine, miraculous movement. And so Peter, or I keep saying Peter, but Luke gives this description of all these people groups. And they're amazed. And they're perplexed. And they're confused, right? And rightly so. They've never seen anything like this. No one has. How can we be hearing These people speaking to us in languages that we know they don't know. I mean, they were Galileans. And Galileans were sort of known as being a little bit backwards, right? For one, they had a really weird dialect. And that sort of brought about the idea that they were uneducated. We see this kind of playing out. Do you remember when uh, Peter had denied Christ and he was sitting in the courtyard with all the temple guards and the, the lady accuses him of being with them and she says, I know you are one of them. And Peter's like, are you crazy? She goes, look, your accent gives you away. People from Galilee had a different sort of way of speaking. We could call them, you know, backwards or whatever we want, kind of derogatory phrase we want to use, but that's what people said about them. So how could these kind of accented, weird, slowly speaking, non-educated people be speaking all of these languages? I mean, dozens of them. They were confused and perplexed. Some of them were amazed. Some of them even said, hey, you've obviously had too much to drink, right? This is the best way I can use to explain this is that uh, you just, maybe you're drunk. And so that's why this is happening. 
because I can understand the one language, but I can't understand all 11 or whatever, where I'm from. We're going to get into that next week. Peter's going to sort of explain why, uh, why that's not the case. But this is the event as it unfolds. So all that to kind of get us to, to this place, right? What is at the heart of Pentecost? Theologically, what does this mean for not only the church, but what does it mean for me and for you as followers of Christ? Because there's some really important things that we, we don't miss here. Oftentimes we're so interested in the miraculous movement that we, we forget what that means for me. So I've got a few ideas that I want you to pay attention to that I think are sort of, well, they really kind of capture the heartbeat of really what was happening at Pentecost. The first is really this idea that Pentecost signaled the presence of God's glory. You know, I've heard more than one message preached on sort of the depth of this miraculous movement and what this idea of tongues and fire and wind and stuff means and how we can capture that today and how we should be kind of seeking a similar gift and all these kind of things. And I think one of the most important things that we have to understand is that Pentecost signaled the presence of God's glory. This wasn't about the disciples. This was a complete and total move of God, and it began with him, and it didn't begin with them. God's spirit blows in like a violent wind, right? They hear it. It's audible. They they are filled with the presence in both the physical they can see and in the indwelling presence of Christ, of the Holy Spirit of God. And then God enables him to do something. This is the miraculous presence of God in the same way that God showed up in the Old Testament, literally in the presence of the burning bush, on the Mount Sinai. This is God's presence, and it is about God. It's not about what happens with the disciples and the apostles and what they actually do, but it begins with God, and it's for his glory. And I mention that because it's important to understand that God's sovereign move is really about what God does and not about what we try and demand and seek from God. And we want to chase after a gift or an experience so bad that we want that more than we want to know the God that provides it, right? We see everybody else around us having these incredible emotional experiences and they're on fire for the Lord and I don't feel any of that. I want that experience more than I want to know the God that created me. This is about God's glory. And what God was doing was something so incredible that it was defined by his presence and who he is. The Pentecost signals the very presence and glory of God. The second thing that we see is that Pentecost brings about personal intimacy with the Lord. We see it in a couple of ways. One, we see it in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Before Pentecost, right, we had to go places to meet with God. That was the movement of the Old Testament. God dwelled in a location and people had to go to be there with God. They had to use a mediator, the high priest, to go before them for God. God was inaccessible because God was radically holy and we were radically sinful. Pentecost brings about the fulfillment of this promise that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. That we no longer have to have a mediator outside of Christ as our kind of entry point to who God is. It creates an intimacy with God. I no longer have to go before someone human that will go before God for me. I no longer have to travel to church to show up to meet with God. But that God's presence as a follower of Christ dwells in my heart that wherever I am is my moment of worship with the Lord. Intimacy with God. So we see that indwelling Holy Spirit. We also see it in this sort of experiential expression of worship. 
What Pentecost teaches us is that my following Christ cannot be just a series of rational understandings of the gospel truth followed by a dedication to live out the Bible well. But there is something more there. And that when the Spirit fills these disciples, they begin, as God enables them, to proclaim these miraculous things. And those things can't always be defined. That worship is an experiential expression of God's presence. And not always a rational explanation of how things work out. This is intimacy with the Holy Spirit. It's why God's Spirit moves us in worship at times to be want to play a part of things we proclaim at the top of our lungs. That we want to raise our hands. That we want to move. That we don't need to be confined to how people define what worship is and what style and traditional and contemporary, alternative, vintage, whatever it is. The idea being is that because God dwells in me, he fills me with an expression of worship that sometimes takes me by surprise. Oftentimes we're so caught up in trying to define things that we miss the fact that God is an experiential God that wants to move in our lives. And that sometimes rational understandings of things aren't always there. And I'm just telling you that there's a movement when it comes to the Holy Spirit that's sometimes undefinable. I cannot define it. That sometimes there is an expression in my heart, the Holy Spirit's move, that I can't put my finger on. And I've got to be okay with that. So we've got this expression, this intimacy of, of God that Pentecost brings about. We also have the fact that this signals the intention of the Great Commission. So this begins with God's presence, it gives us this sort of intimacy with God, and it signals the intention of the Great Commission. The heartbeat of Jesus is the heartbeat of mission. And if we're really honest, most of the time the heartbeat of mission in the church is captured by one or two people that are really excited about it, and they do everything they can to try and make other people excited about it. But for the most part, the church is not engaged and excited about mission. If we're not engaged and excited about mission, we're not engaged with the heartbeat of Christ. From Acts chapter 1, where Jesus sends them from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the very ends of the earth, to this movement where now all of these people are hearing the wonders of God in their own language. Mission is at the heartbeat of who God is. God is basically making, right, the church expand to this bigger picture that will encompass every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it's not about me and who looks like me and what I can identify with. But at the heartbeat of the gospel is a heartbeat of mission. And Pentecost signals that. That no longer are God's people made up of this particular group. But through the Holy Spirit, God has opened up his redemptive plan to humanity that includes everyone. So with that sort of intention, the Great Commission, Pentecost signals the sinfulness of racism and ethnic superiority. It's just true. Racism is sinful. Ethnic superiority is sinful. God was a God who was about all people. The church of Jesus Christ encompasses all people from every walk of life, every background, every ethnicity. It's what Paul says in Galatians when he says that you are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Racism is sinful. Ethnic superiority is sinful. Even the thoughts that make it up are, and Pentecost signals that truth. The church should be made up of people from all walks of life. And I'm not just talking about the particular church, but everywhere. There are no people groups that are excluded. The intention of the Great Commission is that all people should know the wonders of God. 
And you know what proclaiming the wonders of God in their own language means? It means that we have to take the gospel to people. What God did was that he made the gospel accessible to people. This was a miracle of speaking. The church has got to be about that movement. And we can't be clouded by our ridiculous movements of simple-minded thinking that say, I'm not comfortable with people that don't look like me or from the same background as me or have the same skin color as me. It's sinful. And then finally, what we see in Pentecost really is that Pentecost is the fulfillment of a promise. And it's part of God's redemptive plan. And I don't say that lightly. It, Jesus, all through the Gospels, talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit was coming. It was coming. That God was going to provide this great counselor. That Jesus wouldn't always be with them. But the one the Father was sending was coming. Jesus talked about it. He even tells them in Acts 1, wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a promise fulfilled. But more so, it's a part of God's redemptive plan. It means that the resurrection and crucifixion of Christ had purpose. It means that new regeneration, being made new into new creations, is God's intention. That you and I were dead, completely and totally dead in our sin. That sin had ruined and broken our relationship with God, and we were out of harmony with Him. And that Jesus' death and resurrection signifies this movement of God, and the promise of the Holy Spirit is the picture of regeneration, that we have been made new, we have access to Christ. And God is redeeming what is broken. God is a God of redemption. That your broken and sinful heart, that your broken and sinful ways, that your bruised and battered emotional heart, that God is about redemption. Pentecost is about the fact that God was so deeply in love with humanity that he set this redemptive plan in motion that is encapsulated in the fact that he wants to take up residence in your heart. The death and resurrection of Christ is capstoned by God's desire to regenerate or make new your heart. You are new in Christ as a follower of him. You are no longer slave to your old ways. You are no longer who people say you are. You are no longer defined by your one worst action. But you have been covered have been redeemed and have been regenerated and you are now fully alive. Pentecost is the picture of the gospel. It's the picture of the gospel played out in God's redemptive plan. And it is for us. As followers of Christ, part of this understanding is that this should change us. How can we walk in and out of our churches every week the same we are coming face to face with a God that did all this. And I'm worried about if my neighbor thinks I sing too loud or if I raise my hand, they're going to think I'm strange. This God has redeemed our lives and sent us into the world to proclaim his wonders. These buildings should not be able to contain us. Everything changes. Let's pray.